and welcome to the GLD podcast, Governance Uncovered, Local Politics and Development, supported by the Swedish Research Council. This month, we are joined by Simon Mabon, who is a professor at the Department of Politics, Philosophy and Religion at Lancaster University. We discuss his latest research on identity, sectarianism and mobilization in Bahrain and the Middle East. You can find more information about Simon and his work in the description below. As always, this podcast is hosted by GLD director Ellen Last. We hope you enjoy the episode. So Simon, thank you. I want to thank you for joining us today and welcome you to the GLD podcast. Uh, today I thought we would talk about um, your work on sectarianism. I mean, you're the director of a program that sectarianism proxies and desectarianization, right? That's Carnegie funded and you've done a lot yeah. of other work on these on these spaces. But think particularly about the relationship between sects and sectarianism on the one hand or sectarianization and how we might see it in urban spaces. A lot of your work is on Bahrain, so I would like you just, because a lot of people don't know Bahrain very well, maybe just start by giving us kind of the ABCs of Bahrain. What do we need to know? Sure. Uh, I, I find Bahrain fascinating. It's really a, a wonderful place to go. The people are incredibly friendly, and it's a very small state. It's a state that is, is roughly the size of a medium-sized British city like Reading or the area of Merseyside. So it's very small. It's got a population of about 1.3, 1.4 million people. Around 50% of those are expatriate migrant workers, a mix of the two. So there's only a smallish number of Bahraini nationals living on what was formerly an archipelago of 33 islands, but is now uh, generally accepted as being one landmass named after the largest of those islands of the archipelago Bahrain. And of those 600,000, 700,000 or so Bahrain nationals, there is a, a ruling family, the Al Khalifa, who have been in control of Bahrain since the 18th century. Uh, they are from a, a Sunni background, and traditionally in Bahrain, Sunnis have been in a minority. So what we have is in, in light of, of increased sectarian tensions or sect-based tensions, you have a Sunni minority ruling family ruling over a Shia majority on the island of Bahrain. So it's a, a really rich and interesting socio-political history. It gained a lot of traction post-2011, the Arab uprisings. Um, it was a site of serious protests in the in the early stages of the Arab uprisings from February 14, which is Bahrain's Day of Rage, there was a spate of protests that took place, leading to the declaration of a state of emergency and a quite violent crackdown from the Al Khalifa regime, which was supported by uh, uh, troops and security officials from other GCC states, other Gulf Cooperation Council states. Predominantly, of course, Saudi Arabia, who were acting out of fear that the delicate sect-based um, demographic makeup of the of the island could be manipulated by Iran, and that that's a whole other conversation, I guess, about long-standing fears about Iranian manipulation. But what we see after the uh, after the uprisings and the repression of protesters, the framing of protesters 
in sectarian ways, as we see uh, the Al Khalifa and their Saudi backers trying to control all spatial aspects of Bahrain, um, a serious, very structured, regimented regulation of space across the island. Thank you. I think that's incredibly helpful. And, and I'm curious to the relationship between sects, the Sunni and Shia, particularly, and tribes. You mentioned the Al Khalifas, but of course, there are other tribes in Bahrain as well. So, can you give us a sense of how they fit together? This is a, a really rich area of, of identity politics that isn't limited just to Bahrain, but of course, spans out across the, the Gulf broadly, where you have, I guess, three different layers of identity uh, that are, I don't want to say fixed, but more, more permanent sense of identity, leaving aside the, the transient aspect um, in terms of work, et cetera, et cetera. And so they are, um, you have a tribal identity, you would have an ethnic identity, and you would have uh, a religious or a sect-based identity. And the way in which those interact is actually quite interesting, really important in understanding the makeup of Bahraini society. So there is a, a long-standing history of different ethnicities, um, Arab and Persian, living, working on Bahrain. And of course, there's a, a deeply held suspicion about Persian-affiliated groups due to perceived links with Iran. And then there are, of course, different tribal groups um, the majority of whom are Arab, but not exclusively. And you also have, of course, religion mapping onto this in interesting ways. Uh, in many ways, it sort of reinforces what's already happening in terms of ethnicity and religion and tribes. But you have essentially layers upon layers of identities playing out across Bahrain that have resulted in different forms of transient identities evolving, shaped by the evolution of geopolitical, economic, social, cultural factors. But I would say that, that while tribalism is important because it serves as a way of legitimizing certain groups within social order, it is the ethnic and the religious that are actually the ways in which society is divided amongst Bahrainis themselves. So you have the ethnically Arab Bahrainis, and then you have the ethnically Persian. And there are, there are long-standing tensions and suspicions stemming from that. And of course, they are then exacerbated if you add a, a sectarian dimension on top of that, if that makes sense. I mean, it's a, it's a real sort of amorphous dialectic sort of relationship that evolves over time and is exacerbated by economic factors, by political agendas, by their activities within public space and within civil society. And it seems to me like one of the things that's very key, at least if I'm hearing you correctly, is that these identities are not, they're not cross-cutting cleavages, right? That they're sort of overlapping. So um, we have yeah. tribes that are ethnically Persian and Shia. Would that be a correct way to think of it? I think so, yeah. It's not as clear-cut as, as to say that all tribes are X or all uh, members of a particular group are Y. That there's a real sort of interaction. And that stems from, I guess, the nomadic nature of tribal groups 
in the formative years of the, the 20th century and the ways in which state development, uh, state building took place in, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, etc. I should acknowledge that I'm, I'm not in any way a tribal anthropologist or anything like that, but having studied identities and the way in which identities play out across the political landscape, I think I, I can acknowledge that they are incredibly important. So when we think about the urban spaces, and it's worth thinking about the fact that you note that Bahrain is the fourth most densely populated sovereign state in the world, with about 90% of its population living in cities. And so in that sense, when we speak about urban Bahrain, we are basically speaking about Bahrain in many ways. Exactly. So to what extent or in what ways do we find differences in terms of how communities are either um, sort of what we think of as cosmopolitan and mixed, or to what extent are they are they sort of segmented and segregated? How do we understand the relationship between individuals within urban spaces and these sectarian identities? I think that's a really important question, uh, but but there's something I'd like to just pick up on, Ellen. I think that it's important to note that Bahrain is is essentially an urban state. Whilst there are um, rural aspects, there is a, a distinction to be made between the, the more urban centres and then the, the more rural parts of an urban population. And I realise there's a, there's a bit of a tension there, but what's typically referred to as the, the city life and the villages, the villages on the periphery of the state, um, outside of Manama, outside of uh, Rifa or Isa town, etc., and it's, it's often said that the, the villages, quote unquote, the villages are where the political dissent emerges in Bahrain. And I find it a little bit problematic to talk about villages, given the heavily urbanized nature of Bahraini society. But what we do see, I think, is that there is a distinction being made between the, the real urban powerhouses, such as Manama with its financial harbor and the, the vast investment across Manama in terms of, of trying to cultivate a space for economic investment and foreign direct investment. And then the, the more peripheral sites in Bahrain that are far less penetrated by large flows, large scale flows of economic capital that are, I guess, in some ways segregated from that economic heartland. And in some ways, it's not just about a distinction between Manama and some of the quote-unquote villages, but you can also see some of these divisions playing out in Manama itself. And if I may point you to um, a report that, that Sepa did, I have a, a short piece in that report titled Sects and the City, Reflections from Manama. And there's a photograph that I took when I was in, in Manama in 2014. And this photograph, I think, does a quite a good job of, of demonstrating a level of incongruence that we find in, in Manama. In the foreground, you see a car park and you see some smallish buildings. There's a mosque there, community center, uh, backing onto the souk, the local souk. And, and the walls of, of these buildings are adorned with graffiti due to protests, etc. But in the background, you can see the huge, tall towers of Bahrain's financial harbor. And there you, you have a sense of the, the social, cultural, and economic divisions that are playing out within Manama itself, and of course, across Bahrain. So you have this visible 
incongruence that as you're walking through the souk, which is um, quite a traditional souk in terms of uh, types that you would experience in other Gulf states, um, it's quite traditional. It's not been a site of, of rapid investment or transformation. It's replete with family-run businesses. It's the antithesis, if you will, to global transactions that you see taking place in the financial harbour. And you have that point of tension, you have that point of incongruence between the rapid economic transformation and the impact that that has had on Bahrain, which is visible. It looms over you when you're in the souk and when you're in certain parts of Manama itself. And then you have the, the much lower lying buildings, the traditional buildings of a souk, of a town in the Gulf. And I think that visible tension, that visible point of incongruence tells you quite a lot about some of the broader tensions within Bahrain. And if I'll just say as well, if I may, that the financial harbour in Bahrain is built on land uh, reclaimed from the sea. It's prime real estate, central Manama, reclaimed from the sea. And that, I think, does a good job of demonstrating quite a powerful message that parts of Manama, this parts of the state capital, have been reclaimed in an attempt to, to cultivate new space and to project a new type of image, kind of moving beyond the traditional image of a souk and the traditional types of trading that would go on in a souk. So I think, I think there's a couple of different layers of tension, of incongruence, and different sets of, of issues playing out there. It is interesting, right? That, those are the same kinds of things we might see if we're looking in Dubai or elsewhere, right? I mean, it's not limited to Bahrain that of course, yeah. Um, both that comparison between some of the outlying areas and the and the kind of these inner cities that you know are are what I think most people's pictures these days of Dubai or Manama, for example, are. Um, exactly, yeah. And I think the interesting thing about Manama is that it's not had that sort of osmosis type transformation that you would get in the in the central areas of of Dubai. And you get the similarities, as you say, on more peripheral areas. But in Manama, in the very close to the center of Manama, you would still have more traditional elements, let's say. That's what makes these distinctions so stark. And I don't think you quite get that as much in Dubai or Abu Dhabi or Doha, for example. Interesting. And what does that mean in terms of how people interact? I mean, you know, of course, in our stereotyping of urban life in cities, et cetera, people often think of urban as being cosmopolitan and people mixing and some of these kind of sectarian identities falling away. To what extent do we see those kinds of movements or those kinds of differences within Bahrain and especially within Manama? Or is sectarianism very much alive regardless of whether or not you're in the boardroom or you're in a backyard? I think it is alive, but I think it's alive as a consequence of some of the factors that we'd identified. I don't think that a sectarian identity in and of itself is the most important factor, but I think when you couple that sect-based identity with broader geopolitical concerns and socioeconomic concerns, then you have some quite serious issues for the, for the ruling elites. And if you look at Bahrain's history, you'll see that there's a, a real tradition in a history of protest dating back to the 1920s. And I'll, I'll urge people to read Omar al-Shahabi's book and Stacey Strobel's book, looking at the role of colonial actors in, in Bahrain and the way in which there was a transformation and development of, of political structures there. 
but also documenting dissent. And if you look at the work that's been looking at the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, even the 2000s, you'll see that there's, there's a tradition of political dissent and that traditionally you had in the 60s and 70s tensions over Arab nationalists, which obviously derived a great deal of support from, from working class across Bahrain. Then you would have labor movements expressing frustrations about conditions. Then you would have different types of religious identities that were sort of manifesting as a consequence of broader dynamics across the region. In the 90s and the 2000s, you had protests that were demanding political and social reform. Uh, Fred Wary once described the period of the 1990s and the 2000s as a decade of discontent. And this wasn't explicitly about sectarianism, but of course sectarian identities were caught up in all of this. But it was about socioeconomic factors and it was about political representation. And, and I guess that's, that's one of the important things here, that sectarian identities are in many ways intersectional and they, they cut across a number of other grievances. And so talking about a city as a space of cosmopolitan coming together, I think is true in many ways. But when we look at Manama, we'll see there are a number of spaces of exclusion that have long been there, but aren't just related to sectarian identities, although you can trace a history of sectarian exclusion across Bahrain, but they also relate to economic aspects, um, political aspects, tribal aspects, as we were talking about earlier, the intersection of all of these issues, which leads to acts of exclusion that could be reduced to sectarian identities, but shouldn't be solely sectarian identities. No, it makes a lot of sense. Can you give a slightly better picture of what, when you're saying spaces of exclusion or acts of exclusion look like? There's obvious examples such as particular cafes and restaurants, some of which are, are held up as exceptional spaces whereby the, the rules don't necessarily apply. Uh, I'm thinking in particular of a cafe at the top of, or a bar, I guess I should say, at the top of the financial harbour, which is um, available to access if you are of a, from a certain standing or you have a certain invitation, whereby the rules surrounding alcohol and, and other things are a little bit more relaxed. So, of, of course, that's more pertaining to class, to wealth, to political influence, I guess. And there are other, I would imagine, other examples of that on a more mundane level across the city. I should say as well, though, that cities are also sites of the mundane. They're sites where people travel, where they travel to work, they shop, they socialize, although that all seems rather peculiar right now at a time of COVID-19. To put but, it mildly, yes. <laughs> but even these activities in the aftermath of the Arab uprisings were regulated by the security forces in terms of letting certain people have access to certain places on the grounds of their sectarian identity because of the way in which the, the protests were framed along sect-based lines, but also in terms of where they came from, in terms of their home, if it was outside of the city, outside of Manama in particular. So there were efforts to regulate aspects of life here. It's not just about inclusion and exclusion from particular spaces of cafes, hotels, 
There's the political aspects in terms of who has access to political institutions, etc. But then there's also the more mundane ways in which individuals are excluded, particularly after 2011. I think that's very helpful. And one of the things that your conversation so far has highlighted in different ways is both the ways in which, if we think of them as opposition, but a non-ruling elite and others are using or identifying with sects and sectarianism as a way of challenging power, right? But also the ways in which it's mm -hmm. being used to hold on to power. I mean, I know you've explored this quite a bit, both yeah. in Bahrain and elsewhere. So can you give us a sense of that relationship between the struggle over power and political power on the one hand, or economic power, and then sort of this relationship and identity? So I think it's worth just, just flagging up a couple of points about how sectarianism has traditionally been understood, if I may. And I'll keep it brief because this could be a, a discussion in and of itself, but traditionally people have understood sectarianism in, in a number of different ways. One suggests that sect-based tensions stem from, quote-unquote, ancient hatreds dating back to the Battle of Karbala, primordialist account of identities, which is obviously quite problematic for a whole host of reasons. The second approach suggests that identities are transient, malleable factors that can be molded instrumentally and deployed instrumentally by those in power uh, in pursuit of their own interests, their own ends. And then the third approach suggests that, well, actually, there's, there's more to it than that, that there is a, a stickiness or a resonance of sectarianism that by referring to or deploying sect-based identities, that people will buy into that because there's something inherently sticky about a sectarian identity. It means something to people that goes beyond the purely instrumental deployment of an identity. And so I think that's really important here because what I think we see is that across Bahrain, uh, the whole host of political elites have routinely used and sought to manipulate sectarian identities or sect-based identities because of the to quote Bourdieu here, the, the capital that those identities provide them with. And that gives them a, a certain level of influence across society, across the economic sector, across politics, because of, of what those identities themselves mean. And so you'll find typically, although not exclusively, that elites in business, in, in politics, in, uh, in all forms of the upper echelons of life uh, across Bahrain, typically, although not exclusively, are populated by Sunnis. Sunnis from well-to-do families. And it's very rare that you would have Shia representatives, and even rarer to have Shia uh, representatives of Persian descent, right? So there's a complexity to it and the sense that religion gives people a means of demonstrating legitimacy power and influence and here i think it also in some ways creates the capacity to hold elites and people of influence to account because if you deploy such rhetoric if you are seeking to position yourself as, as a pious individual who uh, acts in accordance with the teachings of Islam, etc., etc., but then your behavior and your acts are not 
in accordance with the words and there's a tension between your words and your deeds, then in, in using this religious rhetoric, you start to call into question your own position within society. So in many ways, the, uh, what Joseph Nevo had termed and Madawi al-Rashid had termed a double-edged sword, that, that using religious rhetoric can have a double-edged sword effect. But in Bahrain, it goes a very long way into ensuring the survival of the, the al-Khalifa. And if you like, I can elaborate a little bit on, on the reasons for that, particularly in light of the, the 2011 protests. That would be great, yeah. So what we saw in 2011 with the mass uprisings across the region and then in Bahrain was the coalescence of a huge number of different types of grievances on Bahrain. People came together at prominent sites across the state to express their anger and their frustration at the ruling family, at the Al-Khalifa. And this was seen in existential ways by the Al-Khalifa because what they feared were uh, the various groups of people in Bahrain coming together to challenge them. And they, they feared in particular the different sect-based groups coming together. So Shia and Sunni coming together, united in demand to call for change, call for political change. And that's exactly what happened in the formative stages of the protests in Bahrain. You saw Sunni and Shia protesting side by side with the very powerful chant of not Sunni, not Shia, just Bahraini. And that was a, a, a refrain that was heard all around the state and in the Bahraini diaspora at this time, that uh, there was a rejection of sect-based identity. And this was a real worry for the Al-Khalifa because they feared the unification of these different groups within society. And so what, what they very quickly did and very carefully and in a very sort of strategic way, they sought to frame members of Shia groups in particular as doing the nefarious bidding of Iran. And they sought to frame the protesters as fifth columnists who had been directed by Iran to try and undermine the stability and sovereignty of Bahrain. And what that is that it, it sought to divide and crush the protest movement and to dissuade Sunnis from taking part in the protests. And ultimately, with the support of the Saudis and the Emiratis, etc., they were successful in doing that in sectarianizing the conflict, sectarianizing, securitizing the Shia, securitizing the protests, and then with the help of the, the GCC force of regulating spaces across Bahrain and putting disproportionate levels of force on Shia groups. And so you would see across Bahrain at this time in the, in the years after, after the protests, very carefully constructed imagery of the Al-Khalifa, of the Sunni ruling family. This isn't unique to Bahrain, of course, but it, I think it was done more so in Bahrain after the uprisings. You'd see this imagery being used to really hammer home the idea that you are in an Al-Khalifa kingdom. It wasn't the, the kingdom of Bahrain per se, but it was the Al-Khalifa kingdom. So at intersections, you would see posters of the king, his son, and the, and the prime minister, hotels, cafes, coffee shops, airports, etc., bats hanging over the freeways. There would be huge documentary imagery trying to posit that this was the Al-Khalifa kingdom, right? So there was a, a real form of, of symbolic structural violence. 
seeking to hammer home this image that the Al Khalifa was in power. And that had a, a big impact in terms of creating conditions that would dissuade the Sunni protesters from a whole host of different backgrounds, it should be said, with a whole host of different demands from continuing in the protests. And that was then supported by a military force and a police force that would install checkpoints at any major intersection across the city, at all of the major points of entering the city. And so there was a, a very clear effort to regulate the physical space, to regulate the canvas of the cityscape, if you will, and then also the online space, as there was a battle over how the, the protests themselves were being framed. And it gets to that sort of dual contestation, right? One of one over whether or not these are even sort of conceived of as sectarian struggles. You know, sort of a sectarian versus nationalist portrayal of the struggle itself, and then the extent to which sectarianism is at play, um, that vision, right? So, exactly, yeah, exactly. And I find that very interesting because, like you said, I mean, it's, it's very clear in Bahrain, but, you know, we've also seen it in Syria, we see it in Lebanon to some extent and, and elsewhere. And I know you, you speak about this in your book, which, congratulations, which is great. Um, it just came out this year. And I'm wondering if you would like to sort of, in a sense, kind of zoom out from Bahrain for a, for a second and tell us the kind of the broader lessons learned across the region. Sure. Well, thank you for the kind words. Uh, very much appreciated. Also, a nice choice of word to zoom out, given that we're recording this on Zoom. I think what I was trying to do in the book was to reflect on some of the things that I'd done with regard to Bahrain. Fundamentally, the question was, why did some states across the Middle East, uh, why were they so badly affected by um, efforts to repress their own people during the Arab uprisings? Why were some states able to be transformed and why did some descend into, into conflict? And there was a, a vast literature at the time, um, I started working on it in about 2014, 2015. Well, there was a vast literature on the uprisings themselves, even at that point. I, I felt that there was something missing in terms of a broader view in terms of how political projects across the region had developed in terms of creating spaces of possibility and conversely mechanisms of exclusion through which people could facilitate change. So what I started doing was, was reflecting on the ideas of Giorgio Agamben, a, a political theorist who looks at sovereign power, to try and trace the evolution of sovereign power in the Middle East. And what that did it help with conceptualizing and understanding the ways in which power has regulated life, creating spaces of possibility, times and moments of possibility, but also restricting those, those opportunities for dissent, for political protest and for, for possibilities. And it was ultimately a very bleak project. It was one that demonstrated that regimes across the region have been very careful in cultivating technologies of power biopolitical systems that have the capacity to regulate all aspects of people's lives and that it would take some something dramatic and almost existential in order to facilitate change in many of these states something like a mass set of protests that we witnessed during 2011 but even then the capacity for those protest movements to facilitate change 
wasn't a given and that it involved engaging with, untangling, addressing, challenging all the various parts of political life and sovereign power that had been cultivated by regimes over, essentially over the past hundred years since many of these states were created. On the one hand, I think it's important, as you, as you say, to think about the ways in which the regimes have used um, these as mechanisms, right? But one thing that we've talked about as if it's static and stable, and I think most of the time, frankly, we think of this as stable, is, is the populations themselves. So while I entirely agree with you that you know, a primordial perspective on identities is not, not necessarily that helpful, um, at the same time, we do see that for lots of different reasons, identities sort of walk with people, right? So if we're yeah. looking at populations and population movements, that we can change the, not only change the ways in which the state sort of uses as a strategy these identities, but actually even change the nature of the populations on the ground. So I'm wondering if you can, you know, we can end by thinking a little bit about that set of changes that takes place, right? Not just the changes of sort of the ways in which we talk about our populations or the spaces that are open, but the populations themselves. Yeah, I think that's a really, really interesting and important point. So that was one of the things that I was really grappling with in the book in terms of what role does, does agency have more broadly in the context of, of all of these really powerful structures and mechanisms that are essentially designed to prevent them from expressing agency in a way that maybe dissents from from a, a political set of structures. And just as a quick aside, I should say that Gambon himself, who I use in the book, doesn't really do a great job at times of creating scope for agency. So that was something that I was I was concerned with. But I think that there is there is a great deal to be said about agency and people being the bearers of identities and engaging with the worlds around them, to go back to some of the ideas about space, that the intimately tiny, as Doreen Massey says, or the much more hegemonic, people engage with these things in a whole host of different ways, and they take on board these identities, they may challenge these identities, they may resonate at particular times, at particular spaces, they're fluid, they're definitely not fixed. And I think there's an importance of recognising context and contingency the peculiarities of time and space and it's through that that there is scope for individuals to express identity and to to maybe perform identities in different ways and for things to evolve slightly does that sort of go towards where you were after what you were thinking <laughs> yeah no it does and i think it's like you said that's that's a very important point i was also just thinking about a kind of a more nuts and bolts way of thinking about it in terms of, you know, these questions that on the state side of can I reshape identity or can I reshape the balance in the population? Can I uh, make it easier for Sunnis to get citizenship? Can I push, you know, populations out of the space? And what does that do over time? I mean, I think if we look at, at least yeah. in my understanding, if we look at Lebanon, Syria, and Bahrain, and the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, I mean, all of them have in some ways reshaped, not just by the kind of the immediacy, but actually by trying to reimagine and reshape their populations. Iraq would be another place where I think we see some of that. Exactly, yeah. And also Iran as well. I think if you look at a number of states 
across the region, you'll see that sovereigns and sovereign power have sought to regulate life and to lay control to space, if you will, again, going back to this, by moving people around, by redistributing populations to try and ensure that, quote-unquote, more loyal parts of a population are residing in strategically important areas. You saw that in Iran with regard to certain parts of the West, the Southwest, in the more oil-rich regions. Of course, you see it, as you say, in Lebanon and Iraq. And in Bahrain, you see government designing particular spaces in certain ways that are essentially done in a way that prevents the mixing of, in this case, Sunni and Shia. So there's a, a very clear spatial aspect that allows for, or prohibits, I should say, the interaction of particular identities. But also, if I can add another point on Bahrain, what you see after 2011 is an attempt to address the, the demographic imbalance. So I talked briefly about the, the imbalance between Sunni and Shia. And so being wary of that imbalance, the Al Khalifa started offering passports to Sunni Muslims from the Asian subcontinent. And obviously the Gulf is replete with migrant workers from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, etc. But what the Bahrainis were doing at this point was saying, okay, come and work here. Uh, work for a number of years in the police force, do our bidding, do what we want you to do without any form of pushback, and we'll reward you with a passport. And the idea for, behind that was to facilitate a demographic re-engineering of society in favor of Sunnis. So there is, I guess there's a couple of different dimensions. One is the distribution of people across the state, and then regulating access to and limiting access to particular spaces and then another is to is to completely re-engineer or demographically engineer spaces by bringing in outsiders and rewarding them for their support by giving them passports and nationality and of course this happened at a time when large numbers of Shia Bahrainis predominantly were, were having the their identities, their nationalities stripped from them. A huge number had their identities stripped. But then the other thing to note is that this, of course, kicks the can down the road because there you have another division being created. And that whilst you may have a collective of Sunni Muslims, you'll have a collective of Sunni Arab Bahrainis with a, a complex tribal history, of course, complex economic set of, of issues. And then you'll also have Sunni Bahrainis from an Indian background, Sunni Bahrainis from a Nepalese, from a Bangladeshi, from a Pakistani, etc., etc. So what the Bahrainis are doing is creating additional divisions in a society that has long had issues with regard to how it deals with division in society. Right. And it's both the creating of additional divisions, but they're not cross-cutting divisions, right? So that's the other, and again, it gets down to the question of how we can imagine some of these divisions breaking down, right? When they seem to be yeah. in many ways reinforced by these kinds of strategies. Exactly. I think it's, it's philosophically about how you deal with the other and how a political project, which is fundamentally exclusionary by defining oneself in terms of what it is not. If we think about a state and citizenship of a state is defined in terms of what you are not, as in you're not a member of a different community. So there is a fundamentally exclusionary part to that. But then if you have all of these exclusionary components within a state, 
that is designed in a way to prohibit inclusion and unification, then you have some serious issues in terms of, of treating people with respect, in terms of equality, in terms of flourishing and thriving of societies. Richard, put a mildly big questions, and I thank you for, for grappling with them. Thank you. Last question for you. Is there anything else you would like people to know? Or no, I've thoroughly like? enjoyed this. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise. So it's been great to be on the other side of the podcast. <laughs> and the questioning. You should tell a bit about your podcast. So, yeah, I, we have a, a podcast with Sepad called Sepad Pod, uh, imaginatively titled, where I uh, talk to, to academics about their work broadly on the Middle East with a focus on sectarianism, obviously, um, identity politics, geopolitics. And it's been fascinating. I think there's so many people doing wonderful work and um, it's great to talk to them about it. And so one day, Ellen, I hope to uh, return the favor. <laughs> okay, thank you. And in the meantime, I hope everybody checks, checks yours out as well. So thank, thank you. you again very, very much. Thanks, Ellen. Thanks for having me.